You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Strand, and this week we are dealing with the idea of human ancestry, talking about uh, who our ancestors were. And uh, this is, of course, our next lesson in our Biblical Origin of Humanity series. We've been going through. I've uh, been going through the book, Searching for Adam, Genesis and the Truth About Man's Origin. Genesis and the Truth About Man's Origin. And uh, we took a, a week off last week, talked about some Q&A and some other things, made a very exciting announcement um, for our ministry uh, about the Creation Academy. Head over to jointca.co, jointca.co, and there you can learn about uh, the Creation Academy, kind of a new creation training initiative I am uh, attempting to put into place and really excited in our very beginning stages of things. Um, I've had some ideas and been doing some planning even this morning uh, for how I think that is going to go. And uh, I'm, I'm honestly getting more and more uh, excited about it as the days go by. I think it's going to be just a great thing for creation learning and I think it's an area where where our ministry will be able to contribute greatly. So so be on the lookout for that, the Creation Academy uh, training website, and uh, go over to jointca.co, get on the wait list. I'm not asking you to commit to anything. I made the announcement last week that we are going to probably offer this for the very low price of six ninety nine per month. And, and, and even uh, just this morning, I, I was thinking about how how really I would like to see this thing be accepted. Uh, I know a lot of Christians homeschool their children. And, you know, I'm just thinking, well, what if what if this was just not, not a replacement for, but a uh, primary piece of the uh, science and maybe even the STEM, you know, science, technology, um, engineering, and mathematics um, at training that that uh, Christian homeschool students received. You know, I mean, what if the Creation Academy was was the go-to for for how people uh, really did their creation learning? Anyway, I have a lot of ideas floating around in my head, and I'm excited about it. Um, got some people I'm going to be talking to even this week about how to maybe start working together on some things and, and putting some some of the training together. So I'm excited about it. It's going to be a really exciting time, I think, for creation learning in these next few years. And uh, and I just pray that the Lord allows us to be uh, to be a part of that. So that's what we are attempting to do. Well, let's get right into the content for this week's episode because um, I've got a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, I encourage you, let me, let me go ahead and tell you this, I encourage you to go grab the book. If you have not bought this book yet, Searching for Adam, you need to do it. Uh, I, I believe it's only Five ninety nine right now on Kindle um, uh, for Amazon, or, or of course you can get the paperback that's a little more expensive. Um, but in any sense, you need to go get this book. Um, as much detail as I have to go over here, the book goes into much, much further detail, and uh, I certainly don't want to take anything away from them. In fact, I very highly encourage you to go grab that and uh, and make that a a part of your library. Not only is the information in it useful, but of course we're using it as a textbook, and it will help to follow along. Um, uh, something I will say, especially over these next few chapters, starting with this one, is it will actually be very, very helpful to have the book because there are some technical things as far, like for instance we're talking about fossil evidence the this week's lesson is called human ancestry the fossil evidence and so we're we're dealing a lot with um, fossils and and bone structures and things like that and so there are images actually in the book that accompany uh, some of the points that we're going to be making. And so it, it's really helpful to actually see those images uh, and make it kind of a visual learning experience as well. Um, and that, of course, is helpful in you kind of gaining an understanding of things. So this chapter of the book, um, it was written by Dr. David Minton, Dr. David Minton. And he works currently with the Answers in Genesis staff, um, but his uh, his resume is quite um, quite impressive. He's got a BS in biology and chemistry from uh, MSU, uh, Minnesota State University, and he's got a PhD in cell biology uh, from Brown 
University. Now, for 34 years, he was the professor of anatomy at Washington University School of Medicine. He received awards for research and teaching. Uh, he was uh, awarded Professor of the Year by the senior class twice during his time there. Uh, he's been a consulting editor uh, in histology for five editions of Stedman's Medical Dictionary, which is a standard medical reference work. And now he is a speaker and a writer with AIG, uh, of course, retired from that other work, and he is spreading the creation message. Man, what what a powerful ally Dr. David Menton is, and well-respected in his field despite the fact that he believes in a recent creation. And I think that just speaks a testimony to it, that you can be a scientist, you can be a doctor, you can be well-respected, you can be considered an authority in your field and be a young earth creationist. Uh, to me, very much uh, that very much reminds me of guys like Dr. Kurt Wise, who is very, very well-respected um, among his scientific peers, despite the fact that even in his field, I mean, biology, um, uh, paleontology, uh, those fields that, that he contributes to are very, very much so not only baked in evolutionism, but really, uh, you know, and geology and everything. I mean, that's, that's part of where the idea of long ages was born. And so, um, anyway, so it just kind of goes to show that if you are honest about the evidence that's there, if you, uh, portray it in a way that is intellectually honest and you come at it from a perspective of biblical authority uh, on your worldview, but but also in reckon in recognizing how um, how evolutionists could believe these things, uh, you can be well respected. Uh, you, uh, the only people. Let me let me say this a little bit differently. Okay, the only creationists who do not receive respect from their peers are the ones who treat what we believe like a conspiracy theory. So if you treat what we believe like a conspiracy theory, you are probably going to be treated like a conspiracy theorist. And the point of this episode is certainly not to go into all that. Uh, I'm already seven and a half minutes in, so we need to get moving on this thing. But, but just know that if you are as honest as you possibly can be with the evidence and you go from there that is going to garner you the respect at least at least to the point that uh, you will be listened to when you comment on significant matters. Now, they might not believe you. They might not want to hear a word you say. Um, but you can at least uh, enjoy a little bit of respect among your peers. Um, so that's all I have to say about that. All right, so uh, let's uh, take some of these main points from his chapter and see if we can go through and get an understanding of our human ancestry. All right, so Darwin's lack of fossil evidence for human evolution. This is where Dr. Menton uh, starts. And so uh, the fact is that Darwin's, um, quote, evidence in the descent of man for the common ancestry of man and apes uh, consisted primarily of anatomical, embryological, and behavioral arguments rather than fossil evidence. And uh, Darwin actually lamented, you know, why if species have descended from other species by fine gradations. You know, why do we not everywhere see innumerable transitional forms? All right, now that was a very interesting question posed by Darwin. So Darwin kind of had this understanding that if what he believed about the world were to be true, we would have to have this clear representation in the fossil record that there are forms in between forms that we see now and that might have existed in the past, uh, transitional forms. And some evolutionists uh, don't even like that term because it, it, it's really shrouded, okay, with assumptions and, and, and other ideas. Uh, and sometimes people don't really understand what they mean by transitional forms. But here's the thing. I mean, this is a direct speculation of the Darwinian thinking, but it only is necessary if you're assuming long ages. 
And if you are baking assumptions into your thought process, which would lead you to speculate that we must have evolved from a more primitive creature, much like Darwin was doing. Now, I get it. Darwin was just building a model of the world. But what I'm trying to get at here is if you just stop doing that and you look at uh, what the Bible says about history, right? And, and kind of the point of what we do here, the point of this podcast even, is to uh, get a meaningful understanding of the world from the biblical perspective. Now, sometimes that deals with looking at the other perspective and saying, okay, well, this is where they go wrong. But uh, can I just say that if you look at the biblical perspective and you make assumptions from there, the world makes sense on our view as well. Now, it doesn't make sense if you're trying to understand, now get this, don't miss this, the world does not make sense if you're trying to understand the biblical timeline from an evolutionary perspective using evolutionary presumptions and assumptions. It, it It's completely, completely different. Okay, it's completely different. So where these innumerable, tr- innumerable transitional forms that Darwin was expecting to see would be 100% necessary uh, using the worldview and using the method that he was trying to use, uh, they're not necessary at all on a creation view. Now, of course, we do see speciation and variation happening. We've talked about that many times so far on this podcast, but uh, the fact of the matter is that we don't expect to see in our worldview these uh, this this mass category of transitional forums where you can see one from the other. Now, some evolutionists claim that we have that, but as we're going to attempt to demonstrate here on this lesson, I don't think we actually have that. I think what we have is a bunch of fossils. And I think those fossils are very, uh, we can tell from those fossils very clearly uh, some certain characteristics about that particular individual. But unless you are looking to form a link between them, there's no reason to do that. And so that's kind of what we're going to see as we go through this. Now, a little bit about the nature of the fossil record. So the Dr. Minton says this, the fossil record favors the preservation of marine invertebrates. So isn't that interesting? It is estimated today that over 250 million fossils have been found and cataloged, uh, comprising about 250,000 species at the time of this writing, all right? Uh, approximately 95% of all fossils are marine invertebrates, and the remaining 5%, uh, most of them actually, so 95% of the remaining 5% are algae and plants. Uh, out of the less than 1% of all remaining fossils, 95% are other invertebrates, including insects. So the vertebrates, or animals with bones, comprise less than 0.25% of all fossils, and the vast majority of these are fish. Finally, primates, humans, apes, monkeys, and lemurs comprise less than, get this, 0.001% of all vertebrate fossils. How then, Dr. Minton states, does one account for a fossil record where the vast majority of all invertebrates and vertebrates are aquatic? Clearly, something about the fossilization process strongly favored the preservation of aquatic creatures, particularly bottom-dwelling immobile organisms with hard shells. Now, if you go back, and we have a podcast episode, and I will put it in the show notes. I am not entirely sure of the episode number right now, but if you look back in our podcast uh, uh, directory, and again, I will put the link out there, you will find a podcast uh, titled something to the effect of the geologic column. It's something dealing with the geologic column. And in there, you will find uh, that I've relayed the creation assumptions for the fossil record. And what we would expect to find in the geologic column if the Bible's account of origins is true. And lo and behold, it's exactly what we find. If you look at the sore order um, in the fossil record, in the geologic column, uh, you will see exactly what creationists expect to find based on the flood model. And the flood model even makes sense of the times when the evolutionary model would not fit the data. By the way, now let me just go back and, and say this because we want to be as honest as we can. If you're looking from evolutionary presu- uh, you know, assumptions here, the geologic column can be made to fit the data of the evolutionist timeline. 
the way that they say it went down. Obviously, it can. 97% of, of the world's scientists believe it, all right? So, obviously, this can be done. Does that mean it's right? No. Does it mean it's the only way? No. But, obviously, it can be done. But this is one of those cases where creationists and evolutionists make the very same, or at least very similar assumptions. But here's the difference, and you'll find it if you go listen to that podcast, and I think that one's only like 15 to 20 minutes long, but something that is um, very important to to realize about it is that there are anomalies in the data when looking at it from the evolutionary perspective. So the anomalies are not at all. For instance, there are times when um, certain rock that is considered from one prehistoric time period might actually be found um, in a reverse order. Uh, there are scenarios such as the uh, you know sea organisms and such that have been found, uh, like seashells and things like that that have been found on the top of Mount Everest. Uh, you, you know th- there are these issues that are complete anomalies in their view, which of course they have explanations for, but but they're not really reasonable. Um, and so these explanations are actually not only feasible and reasonable on the creation model, but they're predicted. They're predicted, right? They're expected because the flood account was basically just a tumultuous event uh, for the earth from the, uh, you know, volcanic and hydrologic and uh, geographical even implications of such a thing. So uh, those things are not only explained but expected, which is very, very interesting. So I find the nature of the fossil record very misunderstood, very misunderstood um, by most people. Uh, and most people are just not aware of how little fossil evidence we actually have for primates. Now, there's still a little over 6,000, uh, I think, um, if I'm if I'm thinking about that right, a little over 6,000 hominid fossils, and I could be wrong on that number. I think we're going to address that here in a little bit. But uh, anyway, the point of the matter is that there is very, very few vertebrate fossils. And uh, of those, uh, humans, apes, monkeys, lemurs, uh, we comprise less than 0.001% of those. So that is very, very interesting. All right, now the process usually requires uh, some rapid burial, in sediment. And uh, that's true. If, if you look at all the recent fossil discoveries and everything, you look on the news, you see them. Oftentimes, if, you're, if you read through, you're going to find the words local flooding. So why in every case uh, of, of fossil preservation is there local flooding? But it's not accurate to say that there was not a global flood responsible for these things. No, that can't possibly be the case. So Minton says that uh, stratified layers of fossil-bearing sedimentary rock cover about 75% of the Earth's land area, with many layers extending from continent to continent. And the global flood of Noah's day would have provided optimal conditions for depositing cementious uh, sediment and promoting fossilization on a global scale. So again, our model makes sense of the data. Now, uh, what about this? You know, is it faulty reasoning? Um, evolutionists insist that, that these creatures were either the victims of local floods or that they have wandered too close to an inland sea or a lake and fell in. But animals caught in local floods or that fall into seas and lakes today rarely become fossils. All right. So this is one of those cases where the evolutionists say that things that happen to fossils um, uh, were possible that just don't seem to be happening today. We don't see explanations of it today. Uh, We don't see today uh, the evidence that uh, evolutionists would like to put in the definition of macroevolution. Now they'll work other things in, and they'll say, "Okay, well, when when we see a, you know, basically if we see a rabbit become another kind of rabbit, and they can no longer interbreed, then that is macroevolution." But that's just a misdefinition in terms, uh, and a kind of where creationists would see the boundary line being different. Remember, creationists use the biblical term kinds, created kinds, barremen. And that's a lot different than seeing the the family, genus, species, and such like that. See, uh, for an evolutionist, anytime you get above the level of species, you're seeing macroevolution. But again, we're just defining terms differently. Rabbits who can't interbreed with other rabbits are still rabbits. And they're not changing anytime soon. As a matter of fact, I read just recently on the BioLogos website where they wouldn't expect to see that kind of change because it just takes too much 
time. And that's what happens, ladies and gentlemen, when time becomes a substitute for God. How complete is the fossil record of land-dwelling creatures, the book asks. Well, here's the thing. The expectations are a little bit different for both of those. So uh, the evolutionists would say that transitional fossils um, showing the progressive evolution of one kind of animal into a different kind. So that's what we would, they would expect to see. They, they want to see those transitional fossils showing one into the other. But now the creationist um, predictions say that plants and animals have only changed within the kind, just like we were talking about. And that we would expect that fossils uh, can be found that are recognizably similar to a majority of today's living families, genera, and species. Isn't it interesting that we all the time find examples in the fossil record of animals who are living today? All you have to do is go online and do a search of living fossils, and you will find plenty, plenty examples of animals who are living today that are supposedly, you know, 60 million years old living in the fossil record. Well, it seems very, very un unreasonable that they have not changed over time, much like evolutionists claim some of the other animals have. Uh, indeed, in their worldview, that could basically be considered a miracle. So how complete is it? Well, of the 43 orders of terrestrial vertebrates living today, one or more fossilized representatives have been found for 42 of the orders, so 97%. Of the 329 families, and remember, when we say orders and families, we're talking about the Linnaean classification system. Go look that up if you don't know what that is. Careless Linnaeus came up with that, and this is how evolutionists typically would classify their findings, all right? Um, interesting that Linnaeus was a creationist, all right? So of the 329 families of terrestrial vertebrates living today, fossilized representatives have been found for 261 families, so about 79%. Jorn Corton reported that 88% of the living species of European mammals have been found in the fossil records of Europe, and 99% have been found in the worldwide fossil record. So we may conclude that the fossil record appears to be remarkably rich and clearly sufficient to reveal if any creature has slowly evolved by immediate stages into a distinctly different kind of creature. So, uh, human primates and fossils are rare, okay, but still, um, counting teeth and bones, human fossils have been found representing more than 6,000 individuals. Yeah, and so that is, that's what I thought there. Um, so it's interesting. Though the fossil record is, is scarce, we do have, um, uh, more than 6,000 individuals worth of human and primate fossils, which means that uh, even in those 6,000, we ought to be able to look and see if we have any transitional forums, if we have anything that can lend credence to this idea that in the past we might have been connected to each other by a common ancestor. So let's move on then to the assumptions directly about the origin of man. What do creationists and evolutionists say? Well, Christians um, would tend to make these assumptions. Life was created in the present form as represented most likely at the family level, although there are some uh, times where that might be different. Sometimes it, it might be more representative of the species level. We don't know. Uh, but we think that mostly at the family level, uh, the created kind or the bearman can be represented. Uh, quote, uh, they observe and recognize the ongoing processes of extinction and limited variation within each kind, but point out that this has never been shown to produce fundamentally new kinds of creatures. And, and you know, it, it, just anybody looking at, at the world and looking at the data, I think, uh, would agree with this. Um, of, of course, evolutionists would say that they do observe macroevolution happening in the present. But, but again, the whole idea of that is based on their own system of classification and how it works. Um, uh, you know, I, I, again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I think it's accurate to say in this case that the game has been rigged. Uh, the way that they define their terms has everything to do with the way that they interpret their data, all right? So um, the difference is that we're looking at the world and making these um, assumptions, and, and let's just be honest, okay? Can I just get real with you for a minute here? Barominology, the concept of barominology was really introduced um, by doctors Kurt Wise, and, and there was a couple others who were who were instrumental on that. But 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 Kurt Wise is one of those names who who really made the field a scientific discipline. And about no, 1990, I think that was all right. Well, it's it's 2017. Um, 
And we don't have the benefit of any state funding, of any federal funding. You know, nobody is trying to fund creationist research. So, you know, a lot of times creation or evolutionists, excuse me, you know, bust our chops a little bit and say, well, look, you know, we've got all these very specific data predictions and you can line up all the homology and you can do the phylogenetic trees and you can uh, put it all together and it looks like it makes so much sense. And I agree with that. But how much research has been done, how much research has been funded since 1859 to when the origin of species came out to build this worldview, this, this idea about the origin of man and about the origin of the world. How much effort by how many people using how many funds have been put into this? And they expect to have the exact same level of... Uh, Data and research from creationists? No way. No way. From a scientific perspective, modern creation science has really only been going on since about the 60s and with no federal or state funding, I can assure you. So, so we're working on it, but we're not going to be able to make right now as detailed of scientific predictions about relationships and differences between organisms as evolutionists are. Now, we can make some. I'm not saying we can't. We certainly can. And research, new research is, is certainly leading to that point. But what we can do is say, look, what matches reality? Science deals with what we can test and observe in the present. Yes, there is science that deals with the past, but we're talking about the present right now. And while we're working on building some of these more uh, intricate models about relationships and similarities and differences and things like that, and trying to form a more scientific representation of the world, which again is going on, but the research is not widely as published or understood, which is why I'm trying to make uh, the Creation Academy um, such a success. I, I, in, in other words, I want people to be able to have access to this kind of information so that they can get a feel for for the science behind all of this, but but it's helpful to look at reality. And in our experience, there's no reason to suggest that bananas, giraffes, and humans ever, at any point in time, shared a common ancestor. And that is where we're at today. So our assumptions would be that uh, kinds do not produce other kinds. A kind in the Bible seems to be clearly defined uh, somewhat about whether or not they can bring forth, uh, but it's easy to see in the Bible that we're talking about birds. Uh, birds are birds. Plants are plants. You know, uh, humans are humans. There are differences. There seem to be clear lines and clear boundaries, um, at least at some point and at some extent in the past, that are not crossed at the relationship level. Are they similar in construction? Yes. Are they directly related? No. So that's the Christian assumption. Now, the evolutionary assumption would be this. Now, it's purely naturalistic. In fact, it's based Based on something called methodological naturalism, and I would even go um, so far as to say philosophical naturalism. And basically, uh, method I can't really talk this morning apparently, but um, methodological naturalism has the um, uh, kind of idea that it, it's just a process. Okay, it, it's the process itself. All right, of of only using what is natural in our understanding of the world. So using the scientific method and, and not involving supernatural ideas in the study. That would be methodological naturalism. It's just the method. Philosophical naturalism, on the other hand, would be the philosophical ideas behind that as to why you should not involve the supernatural in your study. Philosophical naturalism goes past the method and goes to the ideology of why naturalism is all that should be included. All right. So that's an important distinction, but at the same time here, I think I would go so far as to say that this whole system is really based on philosophical naturalism. The supernatural is not allowed. Of course, people allow the supernatural in their everyday lives, especially scientists, because they don't understand the origin of life yet. In fact, the origin of life violates a very important law, if you know anything about science, called the law of biogenesis. So uh, to me, philosophical and methodological naturalism are just not going to cut it. All right, so here is what they would assume, that uh, nothing is considered to be above or outside of evolution. 
including the origin of man and his mental faculties. Now, time out right there. That's very important. If you look up Alvin Plantinga's um, evolutionary argument against naturalism, you're going to kind of see this played out. Uh, naturalism really does not work because if it did work, we could never know that it was true because there's no reason to be able to rationally affirm naturalism because we can't even trust our own cognitive faculties. All right. In other words, if we're at where we are right now in evolution, how do we know that we're able to assess the truth? Maybe we won't see uh, the process starting to select for the truth for another 50 to 100 years, or maybe another 4,000 years. So how do you know that you're going to arrive at the truth? Um, continuing on now, even religion is considered to be a product of evolution. The degree of anatomical functional, and genetic similarity between two creatures is considered evidence of their degree of evolutionary relatedness. So so those are the two assumptions. We have basically on one hand, we have uh, that life is not all related, except that they are uh, related by, uh, by virtue of their common designer, all right? And then we have the evolutionist assumptions would say that really all life is related and can be traced back to a single point in history to one common ancestor. So with that in mind, let's start looking at some of the anatomy. The uh, doctor, uh, first of all, lays out some differences for us between ape and human skulls between ape and and human skulls. And so as we look at some of these differences, um, something to keep in mind is what these differences could actually mean, okay? And uh, all I'm trying to say there is that when we see fossils in the ground and uh, scientists take and make an interpretation based on what they find in those fossils. You can most certainly craft an evolutionary understanding of what you find in the ground. The question that must be asked is, are we doing that simply for the purposes of, of validating this hypothesis, or is there another explanation of the data? So keep that in mind, because what we're about to see as we look through this part is that there are some vast differences between human and ape anatomy. And so when we find something, uh, when we find a fossil in the ground, the question is not at what point in the evolutionary tree should we place this fossil, that's really not the question. That, now, that's the question that they're asking. But the right question is, is this an ape or a human? If, if, we've, if we've looked at it and we say, okay, this is a hominid, so this, so this is an animal that, uh, or, or this is something that walks upright, we look at it, is it more likely to be an ape or a human? Now, some of the baromenological research or research about the created kinds that creation scientists are doing is helping us to better understand this. And we're able to run some of these fossils through computer simulations and look at the data points and see how clearly um, the fossil lines up either with the human side or the ape side. See, if evolutionary thinking were true, then there should be a really nice uh, linear progression in these anatomical differences leading up to uh, where we are today. Uh, but so far, that is not what baromenologists are finding. And that's very encouraging for our view. So we have to understand that as we're looking at these fossils, as we're looking at things that come out of the ground, we have to ask the right questions. It was C.S. Lewis that said something to the effect that science will only give you the answers to the questions that you ask it. Think about that. Think about that. So let's look at a few of these things and we'll try to move quickly. Uh, the brain size, all right? So a small brain versus a big brain. So apes um, typically would have a brain that is no more than 300 to 500 centimeters cubed in size. And the human brain, by contrast, is about 700 centimeters cubed to 2,000 centimeters cubed. And uh, the importance um, in this regard is not necessarily the actual size 
of the brain. Uh, it's it's a difference, but but the importance uh, really in understanding the difference between the two is not in size, but in cognitive ability. And guess what? Cognitive ability is not perceivable in fossils. It's not. However, uh, we can most certainly look and see that, okay, maybe maybe this brain that we found is more consistent with ape data or human data. You might get kind of close when you're starting to look at, you know, maybe you find an, an ape that's 500 centimeters cubed and you happen to find a human that's only 700 centimeters cubed, so you're at the big end of one and the small end of the other, but... For the most part, we're going to be able to draw a clear contrast when we look at a fossil and determine whether or not it is um, an ape or a human. Uh, for many other reasons as well, such as the foramen magnum, uh, foramen, foramen magnum, excuse me, uh, which many uh, just simply call the big hole. That's really what that means, uh, and it's a large oval opening in the occipital bone of the base of the skull where the spinal cord exits the. Uh, cranial cavity, and it's very interesting. Um, Todd Wood, a uh, a very very um, well respected baromenologist in the field of creation science, has been looking at this. And there's there's been some times where he was looking at, uh, at at a bone that he thought, well, man, this this fossil skull really has features of uh, human uh, ancestry, but it's foramen. Magnum, or its big hole, is in the wrong location. So these are considerations that have to be that have to be dealt with. Um, the fossil record is just not all neat and and tidy and pretty for either party, evolutionist or creationist. But the the big deal with the foramen magnum is that it's an indicator of bipedality. And that uh, simply means that we can kind of learn from that how the either ape or human, um, stood, right? How, if they were hunched over, if they were a knuckle walker, or if they can stand on their own on two, um, two feet and, uh, be mobile just fine. So that's another consideration. Uh, but again, they're different. Uh, the form of magnum is usually, uh, kind of further back, kind of angled, um, going out like at like an angle out of the bottom of the of an ape skull because that kind of helps with the way they they can see as they're walking on their knuckles but for a human it's actually coming directly out of the bottom of the base of the skull and that would make sense because we stand completely upright and as we're as we walk with bipedality right as we walk on two feet we can look straight ahead and so that is actually a uh, a feature that would be found on humans for it to be just straight out of the base of the skull. All right, and then there's the sloped versus vertical face. So the human face uh, is nearly uh, perpendicular to what uh, anatomists would call the zygomatic arch, while the ape face is sloped at an obviously oblique angle. And again, it says obviously because it's quite obvious. You look at an ape uh, head versus a human head, and you're going to be able to tell uh, that humans have got a vertical face and apes have got a uh, sloped face. All right, then there's the flat versus the curved forehead. Again, that one is almost, uh, almost uh, just completely self-explanatory. A big difference between the two. Flat versus protruding nasal bones. So human na nasal bones are, are distinctive um, in that they protrude from the face, right? So it's like the nose bones, you know, that eyeglasses rest on. Those are your human uh, nasal bones. Um, but apes, by comparison, have flat nasal bones. And then there's jaws and teeth. Um, because of their relatedness, uh, Dr. Minton says, teeth and jaw fragments are the most frequently found primate fossils. Now, this is interesting. Um, you'll find uh, circumstances where we might only find, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, we might only find, you know, a tooth or something like that in the ground. And suddenly the artistic license comes into play and we've got, you know, we're, we've got museums with um, a whole family of ape men just, you know, hanging out in their cave uh, and doing things. But really the reality is that all we've found is some teeth and a jawbone or something like that. So um, the artistic license in this world is really just staggering. But uh, in contrast to man, uh, apes tend to have incisor and canine teeth that are relatively larger than their molars. So ape teeth usually have a thin enamel, while humans generally have a thicker enamel. And um, they also tend to be more U-shaped in apes and more parabolic in man, although there can be considerable variation 
among individuals of a species. And teeth are very likely to tell us uh, about an animal's diet and feeding habits a lot, a lot more likely, actually, than, than its supposed evolution. So again, we need to make sure we're asking the right questions. Uh, pelvis and legs, there's some more uh, areas. In the pelvis, the hip bones um, usually play a critically important role in walking. And the distinctive human gait requires a pelvis that is anatomically and functionally different from that of the apes. I really found this staggering. If you if you have the book and you look at the picture in there, the difference between these two is is just mind boggling, and it's it's a necessary difference. There's no uh, that I can see. There is just simply no evolutionary jump that makes this work. It, it's incredible. Um, Doctor Menton says that the shape of the iliac bones, or excuse me, blades rather, of the hip bones determine the function of an important pair of muscles called the gluteus medius and clearly reveal if a creature is able or is capable of human-like bipedal walking. Humans walk parallel to the ground, but apes must swing their upper body from side to side. We've all seen that when we go to the zoo. We think apes walk funny, and that's because they do. They're different than us. Um, There's also the carrying angle of the knee. Also, the locking knee. Um, The lock is achieved by the tibia rotating about five degrees outward in relationship to the femur when the leg is straightened at the knee. So this explains why our footprints point outward at the toes. Uh, Apes completely lack this mechanism. Completely. Uh, And they they have to walk with slightly bent knees. There are other uh, anatomical differences, the foot bones, uh, the hand bones, the scapula, the uh, which is the shoulder blade. So, like, for instance, on the hand bones, um, the human hand, of course, we know is designed uh, exclusively for uh, grasping things and manipulating things, grabbing hold of things. Um, we have these opposable thumbs and everything, and we, we, we've got our hands are designed, right, to be able to perform the functions that we find ourselves performing. Uh, the hand of other primates is designed to serve both as a hand and and a foot. Of course, we know that um, they're not bipedal, and so that is uh, a necessary requirement. Um, I've seen some uh, some little kids who I guess you could call them monkeys trying to run around on uh, on all fours. But uh, again, this is um, not an indicator of some past evolutionary history. Uh, they're just simply being kids. That's all there is to it. So. Um, there are differences there. Now, there's other variables outside of just uh, sheer anatomy. Uh, there's sexual dimorphism, so the difference between male and female ape skeletons, that's a factor. Age differences. Um, the skull size is a factor on a primate. So a juvenile might have a relatively large brain for its body and size and be mistakenly interpreted as human-like um, if the age and the development is completely ignored. Um, the pathology the pathology failure to consider pathological change can lead to a gross misinterpretation of fossil primates, says Dr. Minton. And then he gives this example. He says an early Neanderthal fossil known as La Chapelle aux Saints showed obvious osteodegenerative disease, including loss of teeth, advanced resorption of mandibular bone, and advanced arthritis. But a reconstruction of this specimen by Marcelin Bull in 1911 failed to take pathology into account, which actually led to portraying Neanderthals as having a stooped posture, a thrust-forward skull, bent knees, and a divergent big toe. As a result of this misinterpretation and evolutionary bias, Neanderthals were not considered to be direct ancestors of humans until the fossil was properly re-examined by Strauss and Cave in 1957 and shown to be human. Isn't that interesting? So these, um, these little considerations, I mean, think about that, just the pathology of this organism was not taken into account. And for years and years, over over 40, almost 50 years, Neanderthals were not even thought to be direct ancestors of humans. What what an error. And by the way, we, we're going to talk about this more in a minute, so that, that might sound a little bit awkward if you've never heard that before. But ancestors, uh, uh, the, the Neanderthals rather, uh, are humans. And you've probably heard that they were eight men. Some of you might not even think they exist. I, I don't know. But look, they exist. They were ancestors 
of humans. They were humans, okay? Um, Neanderthals are not a problem in a creation worldview. And we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit later. Different chapter. We're going to deal with that, okay? Um, fragmentation of fossils, that's another thing that must be considered. Um uh, one famous skull, for example, uh, KNMER1470, was assembled from more than 150 fragments, um, but accurate assembly requires a thorough knowledge of their anatomy, um, a good eye, and, of course, a freedom from observer bias, and we know that that is uh, pretty impossible to come across um, in any scientific realm. Uh, we creation scientists admit our bias, but sometimes um, the luxury doesn't go uh, the other way. So, um... Three ways to make an ape man. <laughs> Three ways to make an ape man. Um, the the doctor goes through uh, these three things here: combining fossil bones of apes and humans to make an ape man. Man, all right. So, so this has happened in the past. Um, of course, one of the most famous would be Piltdown Man in 1912. Um, the Geological Society of London. Um, it was announced during that that Charles Dawson, a medical doctor and an amateur paleontologist, had discovered a mandible or lower jaw uh, and part of a skull in a gravel pit near Piltdown, England. Um, and this was a tremendous, tremendous hoax. Uh, it, it just absolutely incredible. It was found to have been completely forged and for over 40 years was believed to um, uh, to be true, uh, that this Piltdown Man was an ancestor of apes and humans and was a common link between the two. And, uh, of course, when it turned out to be a hoax, uh, evolutionist Lord Sally Zuckerman uh, declared this, Students of fossil primates have not been distinguished for caution when working within the logical constraints of their subject. The record is so astonishing that it is legitimate to ask whether much science is yet to be found in this field at all. The story of the Piltdown Man hoax provides a pretty good answer. So um, peer-reviewed scientific research for well over 40 years um, led to belief that the Piltdown Man was real, but actually it was just a great evolutionary hoax. Uh, Dr. Manton says that you can also upgrade fossil apes to ape men. And so that has been done um, in the past. Uh, fossil um, apes who, ha who clearly show features of, of ape anatomy have been upgraded to humans based on one or two things that maybe they look like they were... Um, you know, shared those similarities, but really it could just be a distinguishment between the apes. I mean, if you go back and you look at uh, humans um, over a period of time, you're going to find that some look different. Guess what? There are some with some skulls that look pretty crazy. If you found them in the ground, you might call them a common ancestor, but it's not a common ancestor. They just looked a little different. And so that's all that we find. Um, not to mention uh, that of the forged era of hominins, um, evolutionists believed to be ancestral to humans, uh, three of them are very clearly ape-like, okay? So um, the Ardipithecines, the Australopithecines, and the Paraanthropithecines are apes and would doubtless be recognized as such if they were living today. Uh, not only is their anatomy very ape-like, Dr. Minton says, but, but their fossils are never directly associated with human artifacts such as tools, art, um, hunting weapons, ritual burials, lodgings, or use of fire. The jump from these ape-like creatures to members of the genus Homo is dramatic and consistent with the fact that God created apes and men, but not ape men. And of course, the other way you can do this is to downgrade human fossils to ape men. Um, and so there are definitely some examples of that where, uh, so like, uh, for instance, um, the Australopithecus afarensis uh, was dated at 3.66 million years and too old to be human, in spite of the fact that they look so human both in anatomy and stride. So in that case, that's a fossil human, um, which was downgraded to status of ape men uh, because of the dating, which, as we've discussed before, is uh, is a bit flawed. All right. Uh, so how about the role of the artist? We talked about this just a minute ago, but when it comes to depicting human evolution, there is a lot of artistic license in play and I understand artistic license to uh, to an extent sometimes this is necessary when you're portraying things uh, with particular respect to the past sometimes you just can't go back I mean obviously you can't go back to the past and so some things you need to render a little bit but sometimes it goes a little crazy um, so I don't want to go through all these um, 
examples uh, but i do want to give you a couple so like the march of progress we've all seen this picture right uh this really really tidy looking picture where you're starting out with this very primitive looking man who is close to the ground and then he's coming up and rising up and eventually he looks like uh, the humans of today uh, but as one evolutionary anthropologist um points out our progress from human apes in this image looks so smooth and so tidy. It's such a beguiling image that even the experts are loath to let it go, but it is an illusion. It's an illusion. That's not what the process looks like. It's not so clean. It's not so tidy. Um, in 1922, this has to do with artistic extrapolation, Henry Fairfield Osborne, director of the American Museum of Natural History, reported on a molar tooth from the Pilocene strata of Nebraska that he claimed had characteristics of both man and ape. Now get this. The tooth was given the scientific name Hesperopithecus, but became commonly known as Nebraska Man. The London Illustrated News even showed a fleshed-out double-page illustration of Nebraska Man and his wife in their natural habitat. And all of that from a molar tooth. Make no mistake, this process is not as clean and tidy as everybody wants you to think. And uh, there are some who are honest enough to to admit that. Um, so before we finish out for this week, there is uh, some that needs to be said about the um, different forms, okay, of uh, fossil homonyms. All right, so this is what, uh, what they would consider man and his ape-like quote-unquote ancestors okay so um classification is an important consideration here so um while evolutionists are certain right that modern apes like the chimpanzee and modern humans shared a common ancestor six to seven million years ago this ancestor has never been specifically identified so let's not forget that no no scientist has put their finger on on an ancestor quote and said look uh this is the guy it's all just speculation at this point, okay? So that's how it still is. Here in 2018, we are still living in that, uh, in that reality. In fact, the author says that the taxonomic classification of living plants and animals has become chaotic in recent years. Uh, in the past, classification was largely based on anatomical similarities, but now embryological, genetic, and molecular similarities, as well as presumed evolutionary relationships, are considered... In classification, these different approaches frequently lead to very different classification schemes. So when such differences arise, assumptions about evolutionary relatedness generally trump everything else. And, and I think that can be borne out. You can you can look and you can see that if you read the science for yourself. All right. So there are a few groups. Um, Artipithecus group. Uh, that was uh, there was some fossils. Artipithecus uh, ramidus, for instance, was first found in '94 by Tim White in the Middle Awash region of Ethiopia. So far, about a hundred fossil specimens of those have been found, and um, it's got an ape-like grasping big toe, and the reconstructed pelvis does not necessitate bipedalism. All right, now the name Artipithecus or ground ape reflects the evolutionist belief that these were the first ape-like creatures to begin to habitually walk upright on the ground. But again, this fossil evidence doesn't seem to bear it out. It's got an ape-like big toe, and when we reconstruct the pelvis on it, it doesn't necessitate bipedalism. So... Uh, take that into consideration. And then there's Artipithecus um, cadaba. All right. So like Ramidus, this creature, similar in body and brain size to a chimpanzee, claimed to be over a million years older, though, than Ramidus. Uh, at about five to six million years old, uh, comes as no surprise that Ramidus was claimed to be capable of bipedal walking. The evidence, though, is based on a single bone from the big toe found 10 miles away from the other fossil specimens. So again, uh, not only artistic license, but in this case, scientific license, it appears. Then there's the Australopithecus group that has been found. Now, the, uh, these are another group of ape-like hominins uh, found in eastern Africa, mostly in, the, in uh, Hadar in the Afar region of the Great Rift Valley in Ethiopia. All right? The scientific name Australopithecus means southern ape. 
suggesting whatever else might be said about these creatures, they are apes. <laughs> uh, the distinguished uh, paleoanthropologist Lord Sally Zuckerman again rejected the notion that these uh, have anything to do with human evolution uh, and is reported to have said, uh, in my best English voice, they are just bloody apes, right? They're just apes. That's, that's all they are. All right, uh, Anna Menzies is in this group. Um, Africanus, Australopithecus uh, Africanus is in this group. Um, Australopithecus Afarensis is in this group. By the way, uh, you know her much more affectionately as Lucy. Um, probably the most famous and complete uh, specimen known as Lucy became commonly uh, used uh, as a synonym for the whole species, right, of Australopithecus afarensis. Uh, she was found in Ethiopia in 1974. Um, appears to have been a fully grown female primate, would have stood about three and a half feet tall. Uh, most creationists actually consider Lucy and all other uh, Australopithecines to be nothing more than extinct apes with similarities to chimps and gorillas. Um, there are major, major anatomical differences in Lucy uh, from humans, from the skull, from the pelvis, from the feet and the footprints. Um, the differences on Lucy are just staggering. And again, we're going to talk more about her a little bit later. Also, Sediba uh, is in this group, um, Australopithecus uh, Sediba. And so um, that was found in 2008 uh, by the son of uh, paleoanthropologist uh, Lee Berger, and uh, many, many differences from humans in this group. All right, um, the brain size, the skull, flat forehead, an ape-like mandible, postcranial skeleton is very ape-like, um, ape-like upper and lower limbs, arms and hands are typical knuckle walkers, long curved fingers, the feet are similar to Australopiths. Uh, so this is just a completely, uh, just, this is an ape, all right, this is an ape. Not an ape man, but an ape. Then the is there is the um, paraanthropus group, and uh, they're all very ape-like with large teeth, massive jaws, and large chewing muscles. Claimed to have lived 1.2 to 2.7 million years ago by conventional dating, making them broadly overlap in time with the Australopithecine group. Um, there's really no compelling reason at all to think that any of these apes had anything to do with humans. Of course, evolutionists consider the members of this group to be bipedal based on perceived similarities in the hip joint in the big toe to that of humans. Um, also in this group is the uh, Robustus, all right? Uh, there is the Bose, and there is the Aethiopicus, all right? Aethiopicus. So um, now we arrive to the star of the show, and with good timing, the Homo group. All right, now within the Homo group, accepting Homo habilis, we suddenly encounter humans. Not only are they large-brained and anatomically human with unambiguous evidence of human-like bipedality, but we also find evidence of tools and other artifacts unique to humans. It should be noted that evolutionists believe that the Homo group dates from the present back to 2.4 million years ago, making them broadly overlap with the Paraanthropus group, which in turn broadly overlap with the Australopithecus group. This means that when we find evidence for uh, uh, tools, butchery, and use of fire, we cannot reflexively attribute them to the non-human genera of hominins. If a uh, modern land-filled garbage dump, for example, were excavated, uh, we might find chicken bones in close association with plastic spoons and forks, but this is hardly evidence that the chicken was the tool maker. All right, so so that, that ought to be considered. Um, a few of the options here, are, or, or a few of the... Um, a uh, few of the, the, the skeletal remains that have been found here. We've got Homo habilis, right? Uh, again, said to have lived between 1.4 to 2.4 million years ago. Um, but this is considered, even by evolutionists, uh, many of them to be an empty taxon uh, consisting of a collection of several dozen controversial and confusing fossil specimens. So really nothing to see there. Uh, Rudolf Enzis is in this group, discovered by Richard Leakey in 1986. Um Dated at about 1.9 million years old. Erectus, Homo erectus, uh, they believe that um, Homo erectus lived about 1.9 million and 144,000 years ago, um, overlapping with the Paraanthropus group and modern Homo sapiens. 
All right. Now, the first complete fossil considered to be Homo erectus is known as Turcanoboy, again discovered by Richard Leakey in 1984. Um, complete skeleton consisting of 108 bones has been estimated to be about 11 to 12 years old. So the pelvic anatomy indicates that this individual would have been fully bipedal. The brain size was about 800 centimeters cubed. Uh, Turcanoboy shows clear evidence of protruding nasal bones, unlike apes. So again, we're seeing the clear differences. Uh, Heidelberg... Uh, excuse me, Heidelbergensis, okay, um, around 700,000 to 200,000 years ago, uh, according to conventional dating. Um, any absence, uh, excuse me, there's an absence of any clear dividing lines between Erectus, Heidelbergensis, and Neanderthals. Uh, as a matter of fact, some evolutionists would classify this group as Homo erectus, but uh, there are no obvious transitions among this group and no unique characteristics that clearly distinguish them from Erectus and Neanderthalensis. So um, the chaos in classification just, again, serves to uh, emphasize and to underscore that evolutionists are really not even uh, in agreement on what constitutes the genus Homo, and that's a very, very a significant observation. Of course, there's Neanderthalensis. Um, evolutionists would claim that Neanderthals lived between 400,000 and 40,000 years ago, uh, making them broadly overlap with modern Homo sapiens. Uh, they're clearly human in every respect, have no physical traits that, that fall outside the range of uh, normal human variability. But the cultural evidence makes their fully human nature even more compelling. Uh, Neanderthal fossils, for instance, have been found in association with numerous artifacts such as tools, musical instruments, jewelry, cooking hearths, fabricated shelters, and evidence that they buried their dead, which, of course, is further evidence of religious practice. Then there is the Floriensis, uh, but there's considerable disagreement in the evolutionary community about the correct interpretation of the fossils. Um, the evidence does indicate that they were most likely true humans. They just remained small and deformed because of disease, such as maybe a Down syndrome or malnutrition. Um, no evidence here, though, for human evolution from apes. All right. Finally, we arrive at Homo sapiens. Uh, fossils of several anatomically modern humans have been found, uh, including the following. Cro-Magnum man found in Europe. Neanderthals in Western Europe and Asia. A Grimaldi man in Italy. Um, Chancellor man in France. Uh, Predmosti in the Czech Republic. And Denosovan in southwestern Siberia. Um, and again, there's no agreement here uh, among evolutionists regarding which of any of the other claimed species of Homo is our direct ancestor. In other words, everybody's got a different opinion. There is no consensus. Indeed, not a single human hominin, okay, can be shown, or excuse me, not a single hominin, can be shown to be the direct ancestor of any other. It's all conjecture. All of it. But evolutionists generally maintain that Homo evolved from some Australopithecine. Again, there's just no... Uh, finger on the target. So that's the anatomical evidence. Now, as we've clearly seen here, um, the differences are staggering. Now, okay, let's just be honest. If you lined up these bones, um, and if you were to say, look, here's what we believe happened about the world, and your story included the human evolution story, and you lined up the fossils one next to the other, you could probably line these up and say, okay, they're pretty darn similar. And you look at them and you say, okay, well, this feature might have changed a little bit. This feature might have changed a little bit. But here's the thing. You can't actually, I mean, you can use what you find to see if it validates your predictions. But if your predictions are based on your assumptions about the past and your assumptions are wrong, then the data is not giving you correct information. And especially when uh, baromenologists do the research on this and find that um, these features are distinctively ape or distinctively human, uh, there is just no problem at all. Fossils do not provide a problem or present a problem for young earth creationists, for recent creationists, you can believe your Bible. As we've talked about so far, we're made in the image of God. Not only does uh, cultural history and biblical history and biblical interpretation bear that out, but so does the science. The fossil evidence for human ancestry is pretty conclusive that humans are humans and apes are 
apes. Now, in conclusion here, the writer says that thanks to the success in sequencing the human genome, there's now a consensus among scientists that there's only one living genus of humans, Homo, and one species, Sapiens, one subspecies, Sapiens, and one race, Human. This is certainly consistent with all humans sharing ancestry with one pair of human parents, Adam and Eve. There's no scientific reason to doubt the literal truth of Genesis 1-5 through 5 about their origin, or the origin of anything else in those chapters. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you uh, today, and we thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to study your world. What an amazing uh, truth that we've seen here today, that you made us different. We are different. We're we're not the we're not an eight man. We we never were an eight man. Um, things are uh, things that are different are not the same as the old saying goes. And we know that you created a special father, and Lord that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we thank you for that. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for sending your son to die on a cross for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I thank you for listening this week to the Creation Academy. Hey, listen, if you're not saved, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, man, what are you waiting for? Uh, contact me. Get in touch with us today. Uh, we don't do this just to have fun, although I do consider it fun. Uh, there's a purpose that we do this. The purpose is to teach you the truth about our origins, to teach you the truth about why we're here, and to show you that you can believe what the Bible says in any area that it comments on, especially with regard to creation. So listen, if you're if you're in doubt, contact me. Search our website. Do whatever you need to do. There's plenty of good information out there, but listen to me. Don't wait a day longer. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know God, then you need to be welcomed into the family. Look, it's really, really easy and really simple. Read through the book of Romans and you will find, read Romans uh, chapter 10 and you will find exactly what you need to know to do to call out to the name of the Lord. Go to steveshram.com slash y-trust-god. Why trust God? You'll find and you'll read a, an article there that I've written that'll show you and point you to the man who can become your Lord and who could become your Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Creation Academy, and we will see you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye.